This episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible has over 420,000 titles to choose from, all compatible with iPhone, Android, Kindle, or your MP3 player of choice. For listeners of the show, Audible is offering a free 30-day trial membership, complete with credit for a free audiobook of your choice. You can cancel at any time and keep the free book, or keep going with one of Audible's subscription offers. Go to audibletrial.com slash edinfinitumpodcast to claim your offer. That's audibletrial.com slash edinfinitumpodcast, no dashes, no spaces. For this episode, I'm recommending The Heart Goes Last by Margaret Atwood. Atwood is best known, of course, for The Handmaid's Tale, the book which launched the award-winning TV series of the same name, and its written sequel, The Testaments. The Heart Goes Last is one of Atwood's lesser-known books, but it's totally worth checking out, because in it, she lampoons the very feminist dystopias that she's become famous for creating. What starts out as another heavy and serious post-apocalyptic near future of economic and sexual inequality turns into something increasingly ridiculous, yet no less incisive. Sometimes satire can tell a cautionary tale as well as horror can, if not better. The Heart Goes Last will make you chuckle at times, and then you'll feel deeply uncomfortable about it. If you like that sort of thing, this is your book. To check it out, go to audibletrial.com slash edinfinitumpodcast, no dashes, no spaces. One last time, that's audibletrial.com slash edinfinitumpodcast. Now on with the show. Hello, and welcome to Ed Infinitum, the podcast that makes school the subject of study. I'm your host, David Nuremberg. This is Season 2, Episode 4, Sort of Free Speech, First Amendment Rights in Schools. Before we get rolling with this topic, I want to let my listeners know that I certainly haven't forgotten that there's a pandemic raging out there right now one that continues to transform education as we know it. If you go to Ed Infinitum's YouTube channel, you can check out some videos I've been posting with progressive teaching tips for our current conditions of remote learning. If you can't find them through a search, you can always click on the link at our website, ed-infinitum.com. Okay, now, on to the topic of students' First Amendment rights, and sometimes lack thereof. A student makes a fake profile of the school principal and posts it on social media. A student wears a black armband in protest of the Vietnam War. A student makes a sex joke during a class government election speech. A student proselytizes by distributing religious pamphlets. A student comes to school waving a Confederate flag. In the world outside the school building, all of these actions would be protected by the Bill of Rights' First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, which states that Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech, protections which extend to state laws as well, thanks to the 14th Amendment. But schools have always represented a special case. A legal gray zone where the free expression rights of 80 million Americans, 76 million students, and about 3.5 million teachers are routinely abridged, curtailed, and in some cases even criminalized, not only within, but also even outside the school's walls. Think about that. That's almost a quarter of Americans who are subject to these limitations, limitations which the U.S. Supreme Court has both upheld and overturned depending on the era and the circumstances. In this episode, we'll review some of those major U.S. Supreme Court cases that have helped establish what students and teachers can and cannot express freely, not just in, but also out of school. Right off the bat, in case you're rusty on your constitutional law, even for the three-quarters of Americans who aren't either students or teachers in a K-12 school, the First Amendment doesn't provide limitless free expression. You can still face financial or criminal penalties for defaming someone's character through libel or slander. In other words, knowingly and willfully spreading false information about somebody else. A look at how often this kind of thing goes on unchecked in politics and the media, however, is evidence that the standard for defamation is pretty high. 
Still, it's a limitation the courts have and continue to make on our free expression. We can also face consequences for making genuine threats and or for inciting riot or mass panic. That's the shouting fire in a crowded theater that Oliver Wendell Holmes talked about. And various presidential administrations have tried, with varying degrees of success, to censor free speech during wartime. Same deal with various concerned citizens attempting to limit what they defined as obscenity. And of course, an infamous tactic used by mayors and governors everywhere has been to attempt to limit public marches and other demonstrations under the guise of preserving public safety. So yes, in practice, no American citizen possesses full carte blanche with their free expression rights, but a century's worth of court cases have allowed schools far more power than political leaders to abrogate free speech and expression. The first of the famous expression in schools cases was Tinker v. Des Moines, 1969. Junior high school student Mary Beth Tinker her brother and some friends arrived at school wearing black armbands to protest the Vietnam War. They had actually given notice ahead of time that they were going to do this, leading the local school board to pass a preemptive ban on wearing armbands. And by the way, armbands were the sole items banned by this rule. So when Mary Beth and her compatriots arrived at school and refused to comply with orders to remove them, they were suspended for a week and then returned to school wearing black clothing instead. Remember, the school board had only banned armbands, and to disallow any black clothing at all would have been a logistical nightmare, not to mention a rule that would surely draw ridicule or stronger protest from the families. The family of Mary Beth Tinker and the families of the other students involved in the armband incident filed suit against the school district on the grounds that the school board had violated their First Amendment rights and got the ACLU, or American Civil Liberties Union, to represent them. The legal battle carried on for four years, culminating in a 7-2 U.S. Supreme Court decision that students do not, quote, shed their constitutional rights to freedom of speech or expression at the schoolhouse gate, end quote. Justice Abe Fortes, writing from the majority, said a lot more than that, actually. Quote, in our system, state-operated schools may not be enclaves of totalitarianism. School officials do not possess absolute authority over their students. Students are possessed of fundamental rights which the state must respect, Students may not be regarded as closed-circuit recipients of only that which the state chooses to communicate. They may not be confined to the expression of those sentiments that are officially approved. In the absence of a specific showing of constitutionally valid reasons to regulate their speech, students are entitled to freedom of expression of their views. End quote. Now, that might sound like a clear win for student free expression, but pay careful attention to what Fortes said there at the end. In the absence of a specific showing of valid reasons to regulate their speech, the Tinker decision rested not so much on the supremacy of students' First Amendment rights as the fact that students' wearing of armbands was determined not to be disruptive of other students' learning. That and the differentially written armband rules that the school board had cooked up clearly just to limit these students' expression and no one else's. The Tinker case did not challenge schools' rights to limit student expression that, in the eyes of a given school administration, quote, materially disrupts, unquote, school functioning. It also still gave schools wide authority to limit student expression as long as those limits applied equally to all students. So under these allowances, schools can, for example, have rules that allow them to suspend or otherwise punish students for wearing gang symbols, making comments determined to be racist, wearing clothing or hairstyles that are considered distracting, and who boy have those been thorny issues. Schools can also prohibit students from engaging in boycotts or sit-ins that interfere with school activities. And as the definition of interfere, yep, that's up to the school administration again. Nothing in Tinker would have disallowed what had happened only a year earlier in East Los Angeles, where Chicano students engaging in nonviolent walkout protests were brutally assaulted by police when they refused to return to their classes. Many were arrested, 
and 13 students who were determined to be the organizers of the walkouts were actually sentenced to 66 years in jail for conspiracy to disrupt school operations. Their lawyers eventually got the charges dismissed, but not until those students had already served two years in prison for that sentence. So yeah, this can be pretty serious stuff. In short, Tinker versus Des Moines did not alter the potential for the apparatus of state control to support a given principal or school board's determination that certain kinds of free expression were disruptive, and therefore not permitted. What about students distributing religious pamphlets, or, well, any sort of material the administration or teachers don't want them to? The Tinker Standard generally allows schools to control this expression so long as they set, quote, clear, narrow, and objective standards to judge what expression is barred, unquote. In practice, most court challenges to schools that have banned students from distributing so-called prohibited literature have found in favor of the students. There have been exceptions, including proselytizing to elementary schoolers, advocating the destruction of school property, and promoting drug use. But even in cases like alleged hate speech or the aforementioned bringing of a Confederate flag to school, school administrations have to show that students doing this have disrupted school functioning in some way. Schools have applied this standard in more recent years to social media posts and websites created by students, even if they create them off campus. Students who post threats, obscene material, or other content deemed to be disruptive to school operations can face school consequences, and the courts will uphold those consequences if the administration or school board can prove to the court that this content has caused disruption. The standard for disruption became much lower, however, in 1986's Bethel School District No. 403 v. Fraser. In this case, a high school student named Matthew Fraser ran for student government using a campaign speech that school officials had determined to be inappropriately sexual, despite requests ahead of time from teachers who had seen his speech written down and had disallowed it in advance. Fraser was suspended on the grounds of violating the school's policy prohibiting obscene language, even though he didn't use any actual words that, for example, would be banned by the FCC on daytime television. It was all innuendo. Beyond being suspended, Fraser's consequences also included being preemptively disqualified for being graduation speaker at the end of the year. Fraser's family sued, and when that challenge rose to the Supreme Court, the court ruled 7-2 that schools can prohibit or punish student expression, from speech and writing to choice of clothing, if the school considers it to be disrespectful to school authorities, or that it in some way undermines school values. This, if you hadn't noticed, is a much lower standard than disruption. Again, though, a school needs to demonstrate that it has some sort of policy prohibiting such speech or expression, even if that policy is vaguely defined. Fraser also exposed a big honking exception to the protections enshrined by Tinker, and that's when student expression is deemed to not just be private speech, but speech that somehow posits itself as representing the school, say through a school-sponsored publication like a student newspaper or magazine, or a student government election speech. This part of the ruling became very important two years later, in the case that really established the legal framework for school-sponsored speech, 1988's Hazelwood School District versus Colmeyer, where the school principal in question had censored a student newspaper article about divorce and teenage pregnancy. The court ruled that the principal absolutely had the right to engage in this censorship, because the school newspaper was a school-sponsored forum, and not a public one, even if it was funded by public tax dollars. Subsequent lower court decisions have applied Hazelwood successfully to censor or punish student speech at assemblies, pep rallies, and school athletic events, even if they take place off of school grounds. Remember, now the disruption threshold isn't necessary. Schools don't have to show unequivocally that a student article or speech will harm the learning of others, but they still do have to apply such censorship standards equally. They cannot, in other words, 
banned a student newspaper from running a pro-life editorial while allowing the paper to publish a pro-choice one. It's important to note that assignments for class have also been ruled to constitute representing the school. The Hazelwood case established, in the words of the majority decision, quote, educators do not offend the First Amendment by exercising editorial control over the style and content of student speech in school-sponsored expressive activities, so long as their actions are reasonably related to legitimate pedagogical concerns, end quote. So basically, this means teachers can curtail and even penalize, if necessary, student essays or projects for speech that they consider curricularly or pedagogically inappropriate, as happened, for example, in the Sixth Circuit Court case in 1995, Settle v. Dixon County, where the court upheld a teacher's right to ban a student from writing a research paper about the life of Jesus Christ. However, here as elsewhere, the assignment has to specifically dictate or prohibit certain topics. An assignment to write about any topic you want would not offer a teacher a legal right to censor or proscribe. Now, in recent years, courts have extended to schools the power to penalize students for online expression they deem to be disruptive, obscene, or even that nebulously defined condition of being disrespectful, even if the student is doing so after school hours, off campus, or on their own social media friendship network. One of the most dramatic of these cases is Tatra v. University of Minnesota, 2012, a case that made it to the Minnesota Supreme Court involving a student in the Mortuary Science Program which it turns out is actually a real major. I guess morticians need to get their training somewhere. This student, Amanda Tatro, made some posts to Facebook in which she mocked the cadavers she was working with. Although she shared this post only with friends and friends of friends, one of those friends of friends apparently took offense and forwarded the post to the university administration. The university's disciplinary body charged Tatro with violating rules involving privacy and proper care for deceased persons, as well as taking as a literal threat a comment teacher insisted was a sarcastic joke about cadavers and knives. The school disciplined her by putting her on permanent probation, failing her in the course, requiring she enroll in a clinical ethics class, requiring her to write a letter about respect, and requiring her to submit to a psychiatric exam. So, yeah, pretty heavy response. Teacher is sued under First Amendment rights, arguing that she, quote, merely engaged in satirical literary expression that was unrelated to any coursework. End quote. Among Tatra's defenders were two student advocacy groups, the Student Press Law Center and FIRE, who jointly wrote an amicus curiae brief, saying, among other things, that, quote, the notion that registering for a course offered by a public college divests a citizen of the full benefit of the First Amendment for every hour of her waking life, so that there is never a time when she is safe from government retaliation, should alarm us and give us pause, end quote. The arguments presented in the actual case read like a tour of the cases we've been talking about in this episode. The university first argued, under the principles of Tinker, that Tatra's post had constituted a disruption of school activities, particularly in their ability to get funding. The court was not persuaded. Next, the university argued under Hazelwood that Tatra was representing a school-sponsored event. The court disagreed with that, too. The court finally did find in favor of the University of Minnesota, though, on the grounds that a university reserves the right to discipline a student for online speech that violates, quote, academic program rules that are narrowly tailored and directly related to established professional conduct standards, unquote. In other words, if the school lays out clear expectations for what is and isn't proper conduct, then yes, even if you're violating those standards on private social media accounts, you can be punished for it, and the courts will uphold that. Now remember, this is a state Supreme Court decision, not the USC, but it's been used as precedent in other cases since. Basically, being a student entails curtailment of your First Amendment rights to free expression, not just at school, but wherever you may be and whomever you might be talking to. 
Ironically, First Amendment assembly rights are in some ways stronger on campus than off it. The Equal Access Act of 1994 allows schools to ban on-campus meetings of an organization only if that ban is unilateral. In other words, if you ban one group, say a GLBT rights organization or an evangelical Christian club, you've got to ban all of them, any group, unless that group, like a fraternity or sorority, is being selective about what students they allow in. Otherwise, once you open the door to allowing student groups to organize on campus, you've got to let them all in. But when it comes to expression, the court has continued to expand school censorship powers. The USC case Morse v. Frederick in 2007 upheld a school's right to give consequences to a student who displayed a banner at a school event that was viewed as promoting illegal drug use. In this case, the banner did not violate a school rule per se, and was not sufficiently proven to be in any way disruptive. But Chief Justice Roberts, arguing for the majority, said that students' rights under Tinker must be subject to the, quote, special characteristics of schools, unquote, and that furthermore, the standards established by Tinker must not be considered the only justification school officials can use to curtail student expression. School leaders have wide latitude, said the court, in defining what is offensive or inappropriate. However, the majority opinion did clarify that student material advocating political positions should not be subjected to censorship. Interestingly enough, Justice Clarence Thomas, who joined that majority opinion, wrote a separate concurrence, one that only he signed, incidentally, but I think it gives voice and articulation to an unspoken principle that undergirds so many attempts to restrict student expression in schools. Thomas wrote, quote, Originally understood that the Constitution does not afford students a right to free speech in public schools, end quote. Now, that's something of a red herring, because public schools weren't even a thing at the time of the Constitution's drafting, and wouldn't be for about another century. But what Thomas says next is illustrative. He writes, quote, In the light of the history of American public education, it cannot seriously be suggested that the First Amendment freedom of speech encompasses a student's right to speak in public schools. Early public schools, Thomas wrote, quote, were not places for freewheeling debates or explorations of competing ideas, unquote. Rather, schools were places where teachers, quote, relied on discipline to maintain order, unquote. Thomas's statement here is just about the polar opposite of Fortas's opinion in Tinker, that students do not shed their constitutional rights to freedom of speech or expression at the schoolhouse gate. So, are schools just one more extension of American democracy, or are they specialized institutions, like prisons, where it is understood that certain rights are curtailed? Well, in the case of prisoners, those rights have been curtailed only through due process of law, at least in theory. I'm not a constitutional lawyer, but I don't think being subject to compulsory school attendance law counts as due process. Besides, unlike prison, school is something that we are all required to attend at one point in our lives, a point where we are, not coincidentally, both most vulnerable and most malleable. Incidentally, teachers' free speech rights are far more curtailed than those of students. We're allowed to express political and religious opinions and engage in advocacy all on our own time, but any derogatory or inappropriate comments we might make about administrators, colleagues, or students, no matter where and when we make them, in or out of the classroom, in person or on social media, are not necessarily considered protected speech, and we can be penalized for making them. A teacher's general conduct outside of class can also be used as grounds for disciplinary action. For example, getting a DUI or publishing a sexually explicit novel may or may not be sufficient grounds for a school to tender consequences, Courts land all over the place on those sorts of issues. The standards grow even murkier about just what does or does not constitute inappropriately expressing or advocating a political or religious position in class. It comes down to the school having what's called a legitimate interest in restricting the teacher's speech. It can be a real minefield, but at the end of the day, teachers did choose to go into this profession. 
and in an ideal world, they did so with full foreknowledge of the trade-offs they were making. But for students, it's another story. For students, formative experiences with their First Amendment rights, starting from age six and extending for the next 12 years or longer if they go to college, to be limited, is something we should really think about as a society. You can make the argument that free expression is as much a responsibility as it is a right, and that a slow easing into the pool as we come of age is a good idea. But if schools have a responsibility, as many say they do, to prepare students to be active and empowered citizens in a democracy, it perhaps sends an ironic message when schools systematically deny students those democratic rights to some degree. If you've been drilled in the experience that questioning authority or even pushing boundaries through satire results in penalties, do you just wake up one day at age 18 or 21 or whatever and feel confident and conversant in the use of your rights to free expression and assembly to challenge people in power? I'm not sure. I think it does come down to that tension, as old as the institution of public school itself in America, between schools as an instrument of social control and schools as a means to help people become critical thinkers and leaders. And of course, racial disparities give white students and students of color vastly different experiences with free expression and resulting punishments. I didn't even have time here to get into the issue of students' Fourth Amendment rights, protection against illegal search and seizure of property, which are also greatly curtailed in schools, in a manner that is anything but consistent from state to state, or even at times situation to situation within the same state. In recent years, fear of school shootings has prompted further rollbacks of these rights. Maybe I'll do a Fourth Amendment in Schools podcast episode in the near future. Schools, of course, have a duty to keep students safe, especially very young students, and provide a stable and efficacious learning environment. If they do so in a paternalistic manner, maybe that's permissible, considering they act literally in loco parentis. But we should at least have our eyes open to the fact that, for almost all of us in the United States, our basic understandings of free expression and privacy rights are shaped during an extended period where we aren't able to access the full extent of those rights. And that has consequences as well. That's all the time we have for now. Class dismissed, and we'll see you next time. I hope you enjoy listening to this podcast. If you did, please write us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever it is you found us. Like us on our Facebook page. And if you really enjoy it, please consider visiting our website, www.ed-infinitum.com, and making a donation to keep it running. Otherwise, in the grand tradition of underfunded public schools, we'll be reliant on only what we can make from bake sales. The website is the place to go if you want to suggest a topic or send me an email for any other reason. Our theme music is Happy Schoolmaster by Mind Music ID. Thanks again for listening, and remember, Every day brings us opportunities to learn something new. Still with us? Great, then you get a treat. Today's education fun fact. The youngest ever college graduate is Laurent Simons, a half-Belgian, half-Dutch boy who completed his course of study at the Eindhoven University of Technology this past December at the age of nine. At last check-in, he was planning to enroll in a PhD program next. Bye now.